Amen. You know, I love Jesus. I love Jesus Christ with all my heart. And I hope you do too. And I recognize that this is the Word of God. He is faithful, and I'm thankful for the Word of God. And this morning, I I hope that uh, you're ready for some truth. You know, our lives matter because God loves us. I mean, He's the one. He's the one who's done it all for us. And, um, you know, this morning we're going to be in a couple of passages. One is Isaiah 53, and the other one is going to be out of Luke 23. But um, as we'll, we'll progress in that in just a moment. But, you know, in his book, uh, The Cross in the New Testament, Leon Morris, he said this. He said, our relationship to Christ and therefore to God depends on our view of the cross. I'll say that again. Our relationship to Christ and therefore to God depends on our view of the cross. See, if we feel that Christ has truly put our sin away effectively, finally, our view would be quite different from that of the case if we felt he had simply given us an example or won a a spectacular victory which has little regards for the right of our case. But you see, our view of the atonement, how we view what Jesus did on the cross and our view of God are inextricably interwoven. They go together. How we view Christ and how we view the cross and and, and God. Yes, our view of the cross affects our view of God and it also uh, affects our commitment uh, to the service of Christ. Um, When we see the death of Christ as a substitution for my sin, We view it as a beautiful testimony of what God's love has done for us. Because we know. We know where we've been. We know what we've done. We we lived it. We're there. And we should should view the death of Christ not as a, a complete mockery of justice, although it was, but as something of awesome beauty on the part of God. That God loved us so much that he was willing to put his son through that for you and for me. So I'm going I'm to start off in the, the Isaiah 53, if you have that and want to open your scripture up there. This is the suffering servant uh, passage uh, from Isaiah 56, and it tells us of the lostness of humanity in relation to the sacrifice of our Savior. I just want to read a few verses here. Beginning in verse 1, this is the Word of God. Isaiah 53, uh, verse 1, says this. It says, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He had no stately form or majesty, that we should look upon him, no appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. Verse 5, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being 
fell upon him, and by his scourging, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Loving Father, I thank you for this time and I thank you for your word. I pray that you would just open our hearts and minds. Father, that you would be glorified in this moment, in this time. Father, that the Lord Jesus would be magnified in our hearts and minds. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would move us from where we are to where you desire us to be this morning. Father, we love you. We praise you. We thank you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You know, we talk about the lost condition of humanity. The lost condition of humanity. You know, humanity is lost and and life has become a barren wasteland. You think about this. Verse 3 describes this barren wasteland. It says, He, Christ, was despised and forsaken of men. People didn't want to look at him. A man of sorrows, acquainted with, with grief, like one from whom men hid their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. We had no desire to go to, to Christ. And, and, and I love this because this, this English word that we have that's called despised uh, has a heavy emotional gist to it. Uh, with a resulting connotation of maybe something belittling or even contempt. When somebody says they despise something, that's what they're talking about. Highly emotive. But the Hebrew word for despising lacks that strength of emotion. And it really means to consider someone or something worthless. Unworthy of attention. So when you're talking about Jesus, he was despised of men, forsaken of men. He was deemed unworthy. Deemed unworthy in, in, in his ministry and the things that he did. And the opposite of despising is to honor. And to be sure, he who was greatly despised as his, at his first coming <laughs> will be greatly honored at his second coming. You know that and I know that. It says here that he was a man of sorrows. And literally that means and I'm not trying to be funny, in constant sorrow, okay? In constant sorrow, every day he was dealing with sorrow. A man of sorrows, it says acquainted with grief. And I think this is huge because, listen, our sin, our sin has blinded us. And we do not see him for who he is. We don't see him that way. We did not observe his beauty. We didn't observe his power. We didn't observe his love. I mean, when his, when his loving voice called to us, we hid from him because we were ashamed. We were not willing to admit our wrongdoing. And this is what perpetuates the lostness of our society, of people all around us, is because he calls to us, his spirit calls to us. And we're ashamed because we know what we did and we hide from him and we will not respond. Rather, we cover up our wrongdoing. 
rather than confessing it to him and coming to him. You know, Martin Luther, he said this. He said, we estimated him at nothing. We counted him as a zero. We didn't give him a second thought. That's how much, or really how little, we value our Lord Jesus Christ. See, our lost condition is even more graphically presented in verse 6. It says, all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Note, it says, all of us. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. All of us have wandered away from the great shepherd with no exceptions. You know, this kind of explains also why the Jews, uh, for many centuries, have been scattered like, like a flock, like sheep, without a shepherd, because they rejected their shepherd. The one God sent, they rejected And no wonder they're like sheep that are scattered. And you know, sheep are not very smart. And they have a built-in tendency to wander away from the safety and the the, the security and the provision that is provided by the flock under the shepherd's watchful eye. But in a sense, a dumb sheep has less culpability. Maybe they don't know what they're doing. But we do. We are like sheep in that we too are are born with a propensity, a tendency uh, to wander. But when we wander, when people wander, they do so because they choose not to submit to their shepherd. And of course this passage describes not just the Christ-rejecting nation of Israel, but every person that is born in the image of Adam, all of us, all of us have gone astray. All of us are guilty and deserving of eternal death. See, sin is a choice. Sin is a choice, and it's always a bad choice. Always. You know, a sheep will wander over to the fence and it will find a way through that fence when no one else could possibly see it. And it will get outside and you know what? It will never find its way back in. That's interesting about sheep. They can find a way out, but they can't find a way back in. And I've noticed the same thing about Christians too. I mean, we can find ways to get away from God. We we can find ways to get away from the Lord. And it seems also that we can't find our way back. And so he pursues us. He chases after us. He comes for us. He's like, no, you don't belong out there. You belong in here with us. And he pursues us as the great shepherd and he brings us back. You know, and as humanity, we've lost our way in search of greener pastures. But listen, if wealth and prosperity were the answer to humanity's lost condition, there would be no reason for anyone, for people to be hopeless today. 
I mean, think about this. The reality is that most of us probably have a freezer at home that has food in it. We probably have maybe a couple of cars in the driveway and maybe a good job But there's this gnawing emptiness at the center of our soul that a ribeye steak cannot solve. It cannot satisfy. See, when people wander away from God, we get spiritual poisoning in the blood. That a transfusion that we can't get from the Red Cross to cure that. We cannot change our own way, nor can we pay our own debt in order to relieve and be rid of our sinfulness. So the cross, the cross with Jesus Christ hanging on the cross is God's way of redeeming people from our lost condition. He says, come to the cross. Accept this sacrifice for your sin and mine. See, I'm, I'm trying to give you snapshots. This is a, this is a snapshot of our, our lost condition. Now we're going to go over, I'm going to share another snapshot from the cross. The loving compassion of Christ found in Luke 23. In Luke chapter 23, we have Luke's account of the crucifixion of Jesus. And in that, he tells us a, about a couple of of criminals who were who were crucified beside him and I'm going to begin reading in verse 32 excuse me verse 33 it says this it says when they came to the place called the skull they there they crucified him and the criminals one on the right and the other on the left but Jesus was saying father forgive them for they do not know what they are doing And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. Verse 35, and the people stood by, looking on, and even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If this one, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Verse 38, now there was also an inscription above him, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuked him, rebuking him said, do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, For we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. You know, it's it's amazing Jesus willingly went to the cross and he died for our sin. And in Luke's account of Jesus' death, we have this vivid description of his loving compassion. Notice his words. He's hanging on a cross. He has a crown of thorns pressed down on his head. 
And instead, he, he, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He's asking God, he's, he's praying to God, asking God to forgive them for killing him. See, his reaction to crucifixion was entirely different than that of any other person. We would probably be hysterical, condemning those responsible for our execution, but he asked for forgiveness for them. You know, Russell Bradley Jones, he said, when Jesus said, Father, forgive them, he was really saying, Father, forgive them and condemn me. Forgive them and and, and condemn me. He was asking that the sins of these and all others down through history be charged to him, substituting and dying for our sin. But you see, the ignorance of his executioners was certainly inexcusable since there was evidence that Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus was the anointed one. He was the chosen one. He was the Messiah. And that was clear from all of the Old Testament. All of the prophecies prophecies that we have in the Old Testament prove that he was the Messiah. All of his works and the words that he said while he was here prove that he was the Messiah. I mean, his death, the way he died, and his resurrection from the grave prove that he was the Messiah. But none of that, and none of them were beyond the reach of God's grace. He's praying for them. Father, forgive them. They're not beyond the reach if they would repent and turn to Christ. See, Jesus came all the way down the ladder to accomplish our salvation I'm so glad he didn't stop somewhere in between. He let go of absolutely everything. He emptied himself. This is the, uh, what, it, what in Greek is called the kenosis, the, the emptying of himself. I mean, all the way down to he emptied himself everything, even his clothes, as he hung there on the cross, becoming completely poor for us so that we could become completely rich in him. I mean, what a, what a blessing, what a, what a wonderful Savior we have. Look at his deeds. I mean, think about this. Have you ever listened to two different people describe the same event, but they had totally different stories? You know, it, it, I mean, it might have been a car accident or, or maybe a political debate, but their descriptions sound totally different. And you may wonder if they're even talking about the same event. I mean, Luke recorded something of that in this, in this passage. And you have these two criminals, okay? They're both dying the same horrifying death on opposite sides of Jesus, okay? And, 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 and all three of them are, are hanging up there on the cross. And one of them saw this as a, another failed opportunity to get himself off the hook, Okay? I've done it again. Here I am. I'm, I'm, I'm being punished for, my, for my, my, my crimes. And the other one saw and understood that the way of salvation was opening up for him and for really the entire world. I mean, the first man apparently died in his sins, but the second one received forgiveness and salvation and even eternal life. But folks, what I want you to understand is that Perspective 
makes all the difference. Our perspective makes all that difference. I mean, I want to I just stop and, and, and ask God to, to help us to, to maintain a proper perspective in our walk with him. That, one, that, that perspective of being a, a forgiven sinner who walks in the grace of our Father, made clean by the blood of Christ. See, as Jesus hung on the cross, two thieves hung on each side of him, one on the left berated him. Verse 39 says this. It says, one of the criminals who were hanging there was hurling abuse at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Save yourself and us. Folks, this guy's not even original, okay? I mean, you you hear this because this is the third time that this taunt has been repeated. I mean, there's people that are passing by and they're saying, he's the Christ, he, you know, he should save himself. You know, and then you have, you have uh, the, the soldiers who said the same thing. Hey, if you're the Christ, then, then save yourself. And now you have this guy, the thief, saying, hey, save yourself and save us. But this thief is crying out to Jesus, it seems like for salvation... Was he saved? I don't, I don't believe so. And here's why. Because first, he's not asking for eternal salvation. He's wanting to be taken down off the cross. He's wanting out from under the pain. Which is what we do. We want out from under the pain. And so we cry out to God and we say, If you will get me out of this situation... If you will, I will serve you, I'll I'll go to church, I'll do whatever you ask. If you will take me out of this situation, I just want the pain to end. That's what he was praying for, the pain to end. He just wanted out of a jam. He was in a tight spot. But notice he doesn't cry out, save me. He just says, save us. Secondly, this thief He had no fear of God. No fear of God. He also exhibits no evidence of repentance. And repentance is what brings us. It's what gets God's attention. It's what what happens when, when we humble ourselves before him. This repentance, this confession. Look at the other thief. On the other cross, you have this repentant thief who uh, not only condemned his partner in crime by saying, we're paying for what we deserve, but this guy is innocent. I think that's huge because he's, he's acknowledging some things here. He based his request off of Christ's prayer. What was Christ's prayer? Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. He's thinking, and there's hope there, if God can forgive those people for crucifying him, then maybe he can forgive me where I stand today or am hung today on this cross. And he expressed belief that Jesus is the Savior since he would have not have asked for entrance into his kingdom unless he believed Jesus was willing 
and able to provide it. So his was the plea of a broken, repentant, unworthy sinner for grace, for mercy, for forgiveness. But notice also in verse 42, he was saying, Jesus, remember me. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Folks, that is a statement of faith from the cross. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. When I was a kid, I grew up hearing that song, Do Lord. Do Lord, oh do Lord, oh do remember me. You remember? Do remember me. Lord, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. And that's what he's saying. Do, Lord, remember me. It's a statement of faith. And even as Jesus, even as Jesus is dying on the cross, he's redeeming, he's saving this man on the other cross. Do you get that? The act of compassion, this this loving compassion. They're killing me, they're crucifying me, but you know what? Today you're going to be with me in heaven. He's saving someone even as the moment that he himself is dying. You know, Jesus promised this thief a home in heaven. Christ's compassion reaches into the dark soul in sin and even the most self-satisfied soul with these words, today you shall be with me in paradise. (laughs) Folks, that's a promise. Jesus' loving compassion is exemplified through his finished work on the cross and it provides eternal salvation for everyone, everyone who will seek it. You know, I heard about a man, it's kind of funny, heard about a man in London whose name was Mr. Pease. That's right, Pease, P-E-A-S, Mr. Pease. Actually, his name was... Solomon Pease. But Mr. Pease wrote these words and he had them put on his tombstone. Beneath these clouds and beneath these trees lies the body of Solomon Pease. This is not Pease, it's only the pod. Pease has shelled out and gone home to God. That's exactly what happened to this thief. Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. And so that's where he was. That's where he went. Somewhere in a grave outside of Jerusalem, there are decomposing bones from this thief. But I want to tell you that right now, that thief is face to face with Jesus. Simply because he prayed, Lord, remember me. He put his faith, he put his trust in Jesus. And note that Jesus' answer shows that the, the thief's deeds, what he had done, did not save him. But his faith in Jesus saved him. I mean, this guy didn't do any works to merit salvation. This guy wasn't even baptized. He didn't do anything. He simply believed in one whom he acknowledged as a savior. See, to the very end of his life, 
Jesus lived the truth of Luke 19.10. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. To save the lost, even while he was on the cross. And in the awesome beauty of Christ, we have not only the lost condition of humanity and the loving compassion of Christ, but notice one more caveat here out of John 19.30, and that's God's lasting victory. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, he said, it is finished. It is finished. I mean, Jesus used many words to describe victory, but never one more significant than this word, tetelestai. Tetelestai. It's huge. It's, it's a big word. It's, it's, it's loaded with meaning. And this Greek shout was one of physical, spiritual, eternal satisfaction and one that silenced the glee of the enemy and the, and the host of evil. This is where God's salvation plan was completed. Tetelestai. This word, remember this word, tetelestai. It's used several ways in Jesus' day. Sometimes a servant, when they uh, finished the, the work that they had been given to do, maybe reporting back to their master, they would say, I have completed the work that you assigned to me. Tetelestai. See, Jesus had brought to completion all that the Father desired for him to accomplish as the God-man, as you know, God incarnate in the flesh. A servant would, would use this word, tetelestai. A priest would use this word. When he was checking the, the animal that was going to be used for the sacrifice, and when he would look it over and find that this animal was completely spotless, that was, there was no fault in it, it was without blemish, he would say, tetelestai, meaning it is complete, it is finished, it is perfect. And Jesus, of course, is the perfect Lamb of God, without spot, without blemish. Even when an artist would, would paint a picture or a writer would write a manuscript, they would say, tetelestai, meaning it is finished. And the death of Jesus on the cross completes the picture that God has been painting of redemption, which God planned from eternity past. See, quite possibly the meaning that Jesus had foremost in his mind when he uttered this word, tetelestai, was related to its secular use in the context of payments of debts. When someone had a payment, a debt, in ancient times and it was paid off, they would write that word tetelestai across the bill, across the certificate, signifying that it has been paid in full. When Jesus was on the cross and he said, it is finished, he is using the word tetelestai. It is complete in every way. God's plan for salvation. Never before, never after was ever spoken one word which contained so much and means so much. It is the shout of the mighty victor. You know, the evangelist, Alexander Wooten, he was approached by a young man, and he asked him, he said, what must I do to be saved? And Wooten replied, it's too late. And the young man became alarmed. He was asking, he's, he's like, do you mean that it's too late that, that for me to, to be saved? There's nothing that I can do? And Wooten replied, he said, too late. It's already been done. 
The only thing you can do now is believe. Jesus Christ has taken care of all of it. You have to believe. As I wrap this up, I'm going to ask our worship team if they would go ahead and make their way back up here. And I want to ask you the question this this morning. Do you believe that you can improve on a masterpiece? Do you believe that you can improve on a masterpiece? Imagine that you're walking through the Louvre in Paris. You approach the Mona Lisa, you know, by Leonardo da Vinci. Would you think about maybe taking a a palette and and some brushes with you and maybe uh, doing something a little more, uh, maybe touching up the painting, maybe putting a little more color in her cheeks, maybe changing her nose up a little bit? I mean, it's ridiculous to think about that. I mean, for over 500 years, the Mona Lisa has been considered one of the greatest artistic works of all time. Greatest of all time. The goat, if you will, of art. Okay? How absurd to think that we could add anything to this masterpiece. But folks, that's what people try to do. When they try to add to Christ's masterpiece of salvation. They think they must improve on it with some some type of work of their own. But that masterpiece is completed when Jesus said to Telestai, when he said, it is finished, while hanging on the cross, it was done. He proved that his work of redemption was done when he rose from the dead. He said, I'm done. It's done. And when you hear that Jesus paid the price for your sin, you don't have to do anything except receive it by grace. Do you think it's too good to be true? Do you think there's something you must do to earn it? I'm here to tell you today, you can't do anything to add to what Jesus Christ has already done. All you have to do is receive the gift, receive God's gift of salvation because Jesus, Jesus is worthy. He's not like us. He's different. He lived a perfect life and he died on the cross taking your sin and mine. He is the only one who is worthy of our praise. I want to read just one one scripture here and then I'll be done. Leave you with this. Philippians 2, 5 and following says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And for this reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, those who are in heaven, those on earth, those under the earth, 
and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He and He alone is worthy. Loving Father, I thank you for your word. Jesus, you are Lord. Jesus, you are worthy of everything that we could offer.